Welcome to Radio 5G, where we sort fact from fiction, conspiracy from falsehood, reality from the unknown. And by doing so, we change the collective consciousness of humanity. A production of CosmicReality.com Welcome to Radio 5G's Other Voices, a pre-recorded show with audio clips from other shows. This will air on June 14, 2023. Today we have two shows on very different subjects. In the first one, from Children's Health Defense TV, is entitled, Are These New Smart Technologies Just Another Convenience or Dystopia in Action? Greg Gleiser, Scott McCullough, Meryl Nassi, and Amy Villia McBride unveil the reality of an ever-digitizing world. The first time I encountered the concept of a society where everything you own and do is controlled by a massive electromagnetic system was with Cliff High discussing China and its digital enslavement. That was probably well before the COVID shutdown. It was rather terrifying to hear Cliff predict the United States could face the same fate. This show will explain why and why it will not happen. The second show is a dark journalist show discussing UFO disclosures and the 2024 election, as well as considering a mock alien invasion. Different subjects that should give you much to consider. Appreciate your listening. WHO is proud today to launch the Global Digital Health Certification Network. So thank you so much to European uh, Union for the excellent certification system that you have transferred to us and we have the chance to build on it. WHO will begin operations of the network today with the existing COVID-19 certificate as a global public good. Soon after, we will expand this infrastructure by incorporating other use such as a digitized international certificate of vaccination, routine immunization cards, and international patient summaries. Good morning, everyone, and good morning, CHD. Today is Friday, June 9th. I will be your host for today, Amy Valala McBride, on this edition of Good Morning with Friday Roundtable and some of our regulars. These were chilling words we heard from Tedros about the plan they they are looking to advance. And we're going to get all into this uh, topic with our guest in just a little bit. But first, want to start with some news, uh, some top news that have come out in the last few days and share with you the latest headlines. This is our new format of what we're doing with Good Morning CHD, where we share breaking news, exclusive news, things that we're covering here in Defender, other big things that you should uh, be noted about before we get into our show topics. Um, so I'd like to start with our first article. Uh, if any of you were tuning in on Wednesday's Good Morning CHD, you did hear me cover this. This comes straight from the Defender. 
death sentence for millions, the World Health Organization and EU launched the new global vaccine passport initiative. So this officially came out on Monday with a press release from the World Health Organization. Uh, Further in this article, it says technology expert Michael Rechtenwald, PhD, told the defender that under the guise of preserving freedom, a digital passport system means restraints on movement and living for the unvaccinated and forced vaccination to participate in life. So this is now happening, what we've warned about for so long. Uh, Further in the article, it says pandemic passports equal a death sentence for millions and the abrogation of rights for the non-compliant. The World Health Organization should be stopped before it completes the construction of a global totalitarian system. So we're going to be getting into this further on this show, um, diving in with guests on what this really means, how they're looking to unravel it, what we're seeing already in place all over the world. They're clearly holding up the EU as the specs practices and standards, what they've already had in place. We're seeing the QR codes, um, you know, coming out fast and hard. They have been for the past three years, but ramping up even more. And we're going to break down this announcement from the WHO and what it means uh, for all of you in today's show. Um, I'd like to move to our second news headline and share. This is also coming from the Defender as an exclusive article. Uh, So taxpayer funder study uses money and peer pressure to get doctors to push the HPV vaccines. Uh, So in this article, um, we share how documents are obtained by CHD revealing that a government funded study is testing whether financial incentives and peer pressure can nudge doctors to change how they talk to their patients in order to increase the HPV vaccine uptake among adolescents. So we know that money is always behind this. We know they're looking to push this on people. Further in the article explains that researchers at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill are testing whether these financial incentives work to nudge the physicians to switch up their approach on how they recommend HPV vaccines for adolescents in order to increase vaccine uptake. So this was uh, found through a Freedom of Information Act request that we did here at Children's Health Defense. Uh, We found that they were using a $4.7 million grant from the National Cancer Institute and the National Institutes of Health with a research team led by a Merck consultant at UNC and a health behavior professor as well, conducting four different studies to determine the best ways to get providers and clinics to consistently use this announcement approach to vaccine communication. So what this means is that instead of having these open-ended conversations of whether or not they wanted the child vaccinated for HPV, instead they would just presume that the family wants the vaccines and they would just announce it that the child was going to receive it that day as part of their office visits. Uh, The article further goes on to say that previous research has shown this method reduces the time a provider needs to spend talking with patients and increases vaccine uptake, although it also decreases patient satisfaction with the clinical experience and observational studies. Well, of course it would. I mean, a doctor is essentially bullying a family into uh, giving this to their child. They're not having a a dialogue. They're not talking about the risks, uh, you know, associated with HPV or with the Gardasil shot itself. They're just presuming that they want it and saying, here, we're going to give it to you. So, of course, it's going to reduce, you know, the uh, time that it takes for a doctor to sit with a patient and a family and have discussion. And, of course, it's going to increase uptake rates because they're essentially forcing it on the families. So this was a breaking exclusive. Defender, if you'd like to read it, we'll have all of these articles in the show notes. 
Um, I'd like to move on to our third article that we're going to cover today, also coming from The Defender. We love The Defender. Uh, so Irish farmers protest plans to cull livestock to meet climate changes. Uh, so this is an article written by Michael Navardakis. He's one of our top writers at Defender, talking about how now the farmers in Ireland are protesting government proposals to cull the livestock, including up to 200,000 cows, in an effort to meet national and European uh, climate targets. So this is part of the global methane project that's happening. Uh, the article further goes on to say, according to Ireland's independent uh, up to 65,000 dairy cows and 10% of the livestock herd would have to be removed for the national herd every year for three years out of a cost over $250 million in the, if the farming sector is to meet its climate targets. The figures come from an Irish government document and the independent obtained following a freedom of information request. National climate targets in question includes a 51% reduction in emissions by 2030, the target year for the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, and the net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And that was reported uh, by The Independent. So here they are already pushing the climate change agenda into full gear. Um, we've been seeing it all over the news, especially with the wildfires that have been happening in Canada and the impact it's had on most of the Northeast region of the United States, uh, especially, uh, you know, in the tri-state area. Um, these, you know, toxic smogs been coming in from, from who knows what they're actually inhaling. And of course, we're seeing the masks being pushed yet again. Of course, we are seeing the lockdowns be pushed yet again. Um, and of course, the, the media is just pushing out the climate change propaganda. So once again, it's a similar playbook all about totalitarian control, one size fits all. Everyone must shudder in their homes, you know, stay safe, wear their masks. We're seeing this repeated all over again, but now under the guise of climate change. And anyone who was paying attention to the pandemic in the last three years, we all saw this coming. This was an obvious next move in their playbook in terms of how they would advance the agenda, how they would advance for global global governance and have control of the people to restrict our freedoms, to restrict our fundamental rights uh, and, you know, our ability to move freely and just be free people in the world. And so that's actually what we're going to be talking all about today is this form of digital enslavement. What are they actually trying to do to us? What do we have in place right now all across the world? And what should we expect that's coming next? And most importantly, how are we going to fight it? So I'm thrilled to bring on our guests today. Uh, we have on the wonderful attorneys, Greg Glazier and Scott McCullough. Also our wonderful Dr. Meryl Nass, who's uh, here typically on every Friday roundtable. So welcome, guys. Thank you so much for joining this morning. Thank you. Morning. Good morning. So I'd like to start with you, Greg, because you shared a wonderful video about some of the technology that's already in place. I mean, it, it boggles my mind that so many people have what I like to call these spy devices in their home, you know, Alexa, the ring doorbell, <laughs> use QR codes to simply, you know, order food at a restaurant. I mean, it used to be that you could go to a restaurant and simply ask for a menu. But nowadays, it seems like technology drives everything. You cannot access things unless you're scanning and giving away your information. Facial recognition is everywhere, too, in airports. But let's talk a little bit. Uh, maybe actually we can play the video first about what some of this um, technology that's already in place and how they're trying to connect everything through the Internet of Things. 
Amazon Sidewalk is a shared network that allows connected devices to continue working amidst disruptions and with longer ranges. This technology is now available for developers to integrate into devices and accessories, opening the door to new solutions and innovations the world has never seen. Sidewalk to developers. Expect to see a growing number of tech aimed at making the world a safer, smarter, and more connected planet. So this seems to be the messaging all the time, right? More connected, safer, easier. It's all about convenience, but we know the truth. So Greg, can you share a little bit about all about Amazon Sidewalk? Yes. Well, what we're witnessing with Amazon Sidewalk is a precursor to what is being rolled out across the globe. Uh, for many people who live in the suburbs or in the countryside or even in the city, they might think that the dystopia, the surveillance tracking of their lives is far away. It's in the future, but it's not. It's here and it's now. Amazon is a $1.6 trillion company. They uh, provide state-of-the-art facial recognition technology to consumers, but also to governments. Uh, Amazon has contracts with the CIA and the FBI they provide hosting services for them, and they also provide the military with a range of technology services. So what we have here is a dystopia in action. Amazon Sidewalk is an example of the technology, the surveillance technology that is coming into our streets, meaning that they're putting up uh, 5G towers on uh, in, in your neighborhood. They're putting cameras on streetlights. They're putting listening devices on streetlights. All of this data gets aggregated into central locations and then can be used by not just Amazon, but by the entities behind Amazon. So there's this dragnet collecting in the information so that it can be used to monitor people. And this is, this is something that we know. Uh, the things that we think are healthy as people, natural remedies, we think the truth is healthy and good. The government generally finds to be dangerous and endangering to children. And so the number one way that we can protect ourselves as American citizens is by keeping the government in a limited capacity, meaning that we don't want the government to have facial recognition technology in our lives. And again, this, what I'm describing might seem like it's in the future, far away, but it's not. Um, one of the things that I'm doing for children's health defense is I'm gaining access to insider records from the city of Los Angeles, which is rolling out what's called a smart city. And in the process of gaining records, I'm learning what the city of Los Angeles is planning to do to residents. So here's an example where the smart city initiative is working with uh, the Bureau of Street Lighting, the BSL, to roll out what I was describing there. That's Wi-Fi, not in your house, but on your block. So that if your neighbor wants to turn off his lights, he can access your Wi-Fi network to turn off his lights. CCTV cameras, watching you, listening. That means that if, for example, there's a gunshot in your neighborhood, the police will automatically get called. And a gunshot is just one example of an audible um, uh, data point. Uh, this AI technology can also pick up conversations. So imagine you're having a conversation with your child or with a friend, and you happen to mention something that the government doesn't like, what well, maybe hate speech or something like that, then these algorithms can get triggered and you can have issues. So this is what I'm talking about with keeping the government out of our lives. 
what this what these smart city people want to do is integrate into everything. What we're looking at here is a um, a document provided by a consultant for the city. This is like the top level working with the IT agency of the city. And this is not an isolated incident where they're like, oh, well, let's just work on streetlights or something. This is every single thing the city does is now being turned into a smart program. Smart just means that they are engaged in very advanced surveillance using the latest technology. And I'd like to give an example of street lighting because Los Angeles is on track to become the first 5G city in the nation. And they're working with these telecom companies. They have 2,675 G devices attached just to the streetlights themselves. And there's over 200,000 streetlights in LA, but they're rolling it out that to um, 37,000 already have smart nodes on them, which is all these issues that I've been talking about. And they, uh, the city specifically admits they're going to use the smart poles outside your house to help solve crimes. That means that they are going to be tracking individuals on the street. And Amazon sidewalk, they, they chose that word sidewalk to make you think it's outside your home. It's not. This is about what's happening in your home just as much as it is about what's happening on the street. And the, the director of the Bureau of Street Lighting, for example, a man named Miguel Sangalang, he said that My Voice LA is the city's first centralized reporting tool for harassment and discrimination. That's what they consider a crime. So if you are engaged in discrimination, hate speech, the government thinks that it's a good idea to uh, find out that information on you and then go in and stop you from doing that. Um, another... Um, wild idea that came from the, the government that I found in these documents. And by the way, this is the first time the public has ever gotten to see this right here on Good Morning CHD um, is a an insider document from the consultant called Gartner Consulting. They're like the very top. And what it says is that they and we're looking at here on the screen, they the city wants to be able to put facial recognition technology in your home. So they can track your face 24-7, okay? So that if, for example, you th that they the facial recognition technology observes that you are dehydrated, they will send you a notice, like a text message. And if you don't respond to the notice, then they will potentially call social services out to check on you. They think this is a good idea, tracking our faces 24-7 in our own homes. That's how out of touch these people are. And how advanced this technology is. And the document that I showed you was from even before COVID. So these people are very advanced in their technology. COVID was the testing ground, just as Amy highlighted during the intro. We know what COVID was. COVID was 1.0, the public health power rule 1.0. So what is CHD doing to solve this issue? Well, we are doing three things. Number one, are exposing the dystopia. That means we're gaining access to inside records and publishing them. I've just showed you uh, a couple of insider documents. We have so much more coming, so stay tuned because CHD is exposing the dystopia. Number two, we are litigating for your rights. That means that you have the right to opt out of these programs, and that means that we are going into court and advocating for your privacy rights, your constitutional right to privacy, as well as your right to privacy under state law. And number three, we are organizing. We are organizing 
not just the temporary solution of opting out of programs, but also the long-term solution where the government and corporations are not allowed to actually have your data in the first place unless you've specifically opted in. And what that opt-in looks like would be very favorable for privacy rights. And uh, we will know whether we won or lost on this issue, depending on if we succeed in getting opt-in rights, we, we've won. CHD has won. But we will know if we've lost, if we cross the red line. The red line is something that Amy highlighted at the, in the intro, and it's so important. This is so critical. These 15-minute these cities, these smart cities, they need our health data, read vaccination status, to work. Whether you get to go in or out of the city, how you get to move, it's all based on this passport, this vaccine passport, digital passports. We will know that red line is if international authorities ever get the power to do biometric ID on us, that's it. That's that's the game changer. And so it's so critical because the biometric ID connects to all of the devices. Um, everything runs and is tracked by this idea of your biometrics, your, your face, your thumbprint, your voice, your devices, all of the many technologies. We're talking about millions of technologies all come back to this idea of tracking people through biometric ID. So that's the one red line. And it's not a red line that's very far into the future. It is here and now. And thank goodness that CHD is empowering lawyers like me and Scott to expose the dystopia, litigate, and organize. Yes, thank God for you guys doing this and sharing this information with all of our followers and viewers. And you're absolutely right, it is here already. I mean, I believe there's up to 24 airports now in the United States that are using facial recognition at airports. And of course, they're going to package this as for your safety, you know, for convenience to get through the airport quicker. But what people don't realize is just how far this can be taken. I'm sure many of our viewers will remember there was a story about a mother who was with her daughter going to MSG in Manhattan for a Girl Scout event. And literally upon entering MSG was immediately, uh, you know, accosted by security and pulled out because of the facial recognition. Come to find out she was an attorney, worked for a firm that had a plaintiff they were representing that was suing MSG. So her, her face was already on a list and targeted. So this is how far they can push it. It's already happening. It is out there already. This is not a dystopian nightmare that we have to worry about in the future. It is here now and it is ramping up. And that's why we're so glad we have both of you, uh, you know, fighting this for us and putting this information out there and litigating and especially letting people know uh, what they can do to maintain, you know, to maintain their rights. Um, so I'd, I'd like to move to Scott to share a little bit more and just in terms of like, you know, how, how is this data going to be used against us and how, what rights do we have to our privacy? You know, how can we say no about this? Uh, hi, everyone. Um, well, Greg's laid out a, a lot of um, kind of what they're putting in place, what they have in place. It's important to understand that things like the L.A. idea of a smart city is being rolled out in many other places. Um, it's just integration of what is actually already there and then expansion to even more. What folks do not understand is there is already an existing network of networks where data about people is being collected in many different ways. 
we, we put up this visual abstraction. Just imagine this under any geographic area. You can see a lot of different spaghetti lines of different colors. Imagine that those are communications links of various types, whether it be a 5G, whether it be a fiber to, to some area, whether it be something that connects a camera or a microphone on a street light. But all of these links go back to somewhere else. It goes back to a data center, which is in turn interconnected to other data centers. They are collecting data that is then assembled. They are attempting to be in position of creating an individual profile for everyone that reflects everything in your life that they can surveil and capture and store. Like Greg said, um, this uh, vaccine travel passport is merely the entry for the, the next step, which will be a biometric digital ID. Yeah. Um, you, people may think, well, I already have an identification number. It's a social security number. Well, those who are older like me remember back when they created the social security number, they said, we're only going to use it for tax purposes. Mm -hmm. Now it, it's in many respects, a universal identifier. They do have a legal problem with social security numbers, though, and it's a not very well known provision in the Privacy Act of 1974, which basically says you cannot be compelled to disclose uh, or have used against you your social security number unless it is for something that is expressly authorized by federal statute. And if you refuse, then they cannot deny you a uh, neither the states nor the feds can deny you a good benefit or service. So the social security number itself being just a number isn't going to work for purposes of a universal digital ID, nor is it compatible with what they're planning to do on the international stage. Conceptualize that up in the clouds, in the sky. And remember, this stuff isn't stored in any one place. It's stored in many different places, but they can, can connect it all together to create a virtual profile of you. Everything about your life, your medical information, your financial information, where you are observed going, what you are observed doing, what you are observed saying, things you buy, how you buy them. And this is all collected up into a profile for you that will be tied to this digital biometric ID. And then it will be used ultimately to control what you can do, where you can go, how you can go there, whether you will even be allowed into places like Madison Square Garden, <laughs> you know, whether you can buy certain foods. Imagine, for example, somebody uh, in authority decides, oh, you burned too much carbon this month. We're not going to let you buy any more gasoline. Imagine that they say you've eaten too much meat this month. No, you got to go over the bug section. <laughs> They can actually control this because when you have a digital ID, then it's tied to the digital currency. They can refuse to accept your cash, force you to use some kind of other method, and then they can deny you the ability to buy anything that you want. So it is the means under which to surveil everything, know everything, and then use it to control your life. It can control how you manage your children. It can monitor 
how you manage your children. Alexa can pick up some conversation you have with your child. It goes into your profile. Maybe you use some words that bother them. You get enough of these strikes, like kind of on social media, you know, they're going to send out Child Protective Service to give you a little visit. Right. All we have to do is look at China where they're, you know, heading with the social credit system and see this is where they're going as well. I mean, this is such a dystopian nightmare. Can you share a little bit, Scott, about the international bodies in terms of, you know, the role of the WHO and and how they're pushing this? Because just Monday they announced it with their press release. I mean, this is now being rolled out globally, a global digital health certificate network. They're looking at, you know, EU as the best practices and what they've done and what they already have in place. And they're trying to ramp this up. So can you can you share with our viewers a little more in terms of how that is moving forward? Yes, but let me first start with kind of concept. We are being told that this is a travel document. It will be used so that people can verify when you pass some border. At present, it's international. Next, it may be state. Next, it may be city, then it'll be 10 miles. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Whenever you pass some border, you will have to have your papers. Much like in those old movies about, you know, the Germans requiring papers in World War II. Show me your paper. This is a travel document. And it will be used to determine whether you will be allowed to pass through a boundary. But remember, it is a form of identification. A driver's license is a travel document. And so the transition from these papers to the biometric ID is really very short. All that it is is just an expansion of the amount of information that will be referenced by virtue of whatever your ID is. Now, let's get to the specifics about what's happening. Um, Yes, the uh, World Organization has decided to use the European Union's model, uh, what we call the syntax and the semantics of how this digital information, which can at least at present also be in paper, but that's not gonna be very long, last for very long. It's the syntax and semantics of what this travel document looks like. And they intend to use it the next time there is some emergency to install new borders, whether again, it's international, intranational, between states or even local. Um, It is all part of Another ongoing effort by the World Health Organization, the so-called One Health Plan. Um, uh, we put up on slides some, uh, some of the definitions in, in, in these documents that are coming out of the World Health Organization. This is a, a protocol that is being uh, negotiated right now, led by the United States current administration, by the way. They have defined what the concept of One Health is. And you can see that it's said to be an integrated unifying approach. And it recognizes that it's not just people, it's animals and ecosystems. So when you hear this word one health, they're not really just talking about universal health insurance. They are talking about treating people along with the rest of the environment. They are basically equating people to animals. And they are going to regulate our health in order to obtain higher social goals, including the Great Reset. But this definition of one health is key to all that follows. 
if you can look at the next slide, um, you know, we've mentioned, um, you know, all of these emergencies that keep happening. Well, under one of the documents that's under uh, negotiation right now, some proposed amendments to 2005 international health regulations, uh, the director general of the UN can, can, will be able to declare a public health emergency of international concern and control the global response. Every nation will have to do what the director general said. We will have to implement it. Plus, each nation, that's state parties there in that slide, will also require that non-state actors comply with the same measures. And we've set out the definition of non-state actor below. The, what that basically says is national governments will be required as a matter of international law to force compliance with these director general directives by private sector entities, every private company within their jurisdiction. So the director general will be controlling all corporate activity as well. They will be able to control everything. And what are they going to use to do that? The kind of smart city stuff that Greg was just talking about because that is how they will be able to monitor. And, and when you try to do something they don't want you to do, use all of this technology to deny you the ability to access your rights as part of the Great Reset. Notice also, if we can go to the third slide. Oh, there it is. Um, we are already being set up so that once the Director General has the authority to uh, declare a public health emergency, they are then going to use climate change as the means for the basis for an emergency. There are already, and, and I've set them out here, um, there are links in there, uh, but if you just, anyone wants to just look at those titles, those are articles out there by people already proposing that climate change be declared a public health emergency. All of this is the means by which they will formalize, instill, take over all national governments, state governments, local governments to impose the 2030 agenda, the Great Reset. Thank you, Scott, for sharing that. And, you know, it's so important that people understand this One Health issue. Meryl, Dr. Nance, I know you've been talking about this constantly, your Substack, educating so many people, really getting the warnings out there about what they are trying to do and just really trying to stop all of it. Would you like to share some perspective on this? Because you've been at the front of this for a very long time now um, and trying to make sure the world is warned. Sure. So um, One Health um, is a concept that has very little meaning. Uh, what it's done is basically, it's, the way it's been defined is to include everything in the world as part of the concept of One Health, which then gives the um, Director General of the WHO jurisdiction over everything in the world. And um, it also gives the regional directors of the WHO jurisdiction over their regions so that you could have a public health emergency of international concern or regional concern. And then they can direct what the healthcare is going to be, what is going to happen, whether people can cross borders, 
whether they get a certain medicine and the WHO can actually withhold medicines according to these proposed amendments to its international health regulations. And they have specifically said climate change may be one of the emergencies. And at the climate change, the, the yearly International Climate Conference, COP, COP, um, WHO had a big um, part in that, saying that, yes, climate is one of the, if not the biggest threat to public health there is. So expect that um, emergencies will be declared that are likely to lock us down or limit us in other ways. As Scott said, we won't be able to burn oil to heat our houses or use electricity to cool them. We, you know, this nonsense about stopping gas stoves. When uh, Let me go back, let me get to methane, if you don't mind. So methane is the newest excuse for uh, controlling us. And methane is a tiny little molecule, one carbon and four hydrogens. But natural gas is mostly methane. So when they say methane, they mean natural gas. And what happens is when you drill for oil or prospect for natural gas, a lot of it gets released into the environment. And also a lot of it gets released into the environment naturally through cracks, through wetlands, through different ways. It just comes up from under the ground. But uh, cows belch and produce gas that contains methane. And so suddenly the, the globalists are going after cows. We have to reduce the amount of cows. And so this is a major part of, of why the Dutch government has said three, they're starting with 3,000 farmers and trying to shut down their farms because they're producing too much, their cows are producing too much methane. Um, this is what happened with Ireland. Ireland said we have to get rid of 200,000 cows um, because of methane. Now, if you feed the cows different food, they don't produce so much methane. So there are other ways of dealing with this. Um, there are probably other um, types of cows that you could grow that don't produce as much methane. And some people say feeding them with um, seaweed or enzymes would reduce the methane. But obviously the problem isn't methane. The problem is control. The problem is reducing the food supply, et cetera. So we have to be very aware of these things. Um, Eric Garcetti, and who is the mayor of Los Angeles, uh, one of the top two largest cities in the United States with over 8 million inhabitants. He is famous for telling people to snitch on their neighbors if they didn't follow the lockdown and the masking rules back three years ago. And he said, and I quote, snitches get benefits. This guy is straight out of central casting for the East German Stasi, the secret police. And I don't know why L.A. is still allowing him to manage their city, but he is a disaster. And this whole smart city thing is a disaster. If you think you can opt out of some of these programs, they're fooling you. I'll tell you about two fake opt outs. So one is these, every state has um, something in Maine, it's called Health InfoNet, where your doctor is, is basically required to send your medical records to a central facility every single day, electronically. And if you want to opt out, they give you an opt out, but it's not a real opt out. Your medical records are still being sent to that facility. It's just that your doctor can no longer access them. Um, 
in uh, in my town also they are putting smart meters in to monitor my electricity use. So there's an opt-out, but it's not a real opt-out. They still, if I opt-out, they still say they have the right to change me over to a smart meter. They're just not going to turn it on. Well, how long is that going to last? Obviously, at some point, they're going to turn it on, whether I allow them to or not. Um, maybe they need to get a law in place. So watch out. I mean, Greg is absolutely right. We need good, accurate opt-outs. But be careful because they're trying to fool us with fake opt-outs. The last thing I wanted to say about the HPV vaccine is, is if your doctor starts using a different method to convince you to give HPV vaccine to your children by actually pretending that it's already on the childhood schedule, it's a required vaccine, and it's, it's just a formality, really, to, to get your agreement that is um, fake. They have taken away informed consent. You do have the right to informed consent, which means you have you get all your questions answered as much as you want, and you have the right to say no with no adverse consequences. Now that's true, that's in law, but of course in some places they won't, and especially California, they won't let your child go to school. But in most, in almost all states, like 48 states, you are not required to, to vaccinate your child with an HPV vaccine. So don't let your doctor think you are. You have a real informed consent on it. This is another bait and switch. And it is in almost every state, it is not on the childhood schedule. It's a dangerous vaccine. It probably makes you more susceptible to an HPV infection. So thanks for letting me speak. Great. And that's really what it's all about is informed consent, right? I mean, we have to understand what the risks are for everything we're being exposed to and, you know, the, the, the dangers. So, Scott, you know, I know you are our lead litigator for the Children's Health Defense EMR program, doing such tremendous work, you know, with litigation, education and advocacy, getting out the word um, so people understand the risks that they are facing when they are exposed to this constant you know, uh, radio frequency radiation, and and we have five G rolling out quickly. I'm sure six G is coming next. Can you talk a little bit about some of the health impacts of all of this, as well as obviously the privacy concerns? Yeah, let me start with with, with the privacy and and then go over to the health issues. First of all, I want people to conceptualize that informed consent is not just about your medical relationship with the state and its actors, including your doctors. Informed consent is a privacy right that is goes along with what we call autonomy privacy, which means your own innate, you know, as you were born, right, to control aspects of your entire body. So you have the right to control who collects your information and what they do with it. And so, you know, you have the right to give informed consent over whether they capture your information to begin with, or at least you should. That is why, and it's going to be the fundamental basis for our argument that people need to opt in. Opting in is the exercise of informed consent. The problem is that these documents that are being negotiated in WHO right now not only talks about health, 
But it, if, if you could pull up slide four for my stuff, it requires all the national parties to implement the One Health approach, including surveillance. In other words, from the national international level, they are requiring national parties to survey. And then they are going to be required to share the data. Um, the, the same thing with censorship. These documents require the national parties to engage in censorship. We're now seeing extensive use of a new word, the so-called infodemic, which is basically any word they don't like. Okay, if you use a word they don't like, that's part of the infodemic. It will be surveilled and it will be used against you. Um, we have already begun to implement many of these things at the national level. The last National Defense Authorization Act, which, um, you know, isn't just about the military anymore. It already has adopted the One Health approach. Um, it authorizes, and we're looking at slide seven now, the president is authorized to develop, obtain, maintain, and advance the One Health approach. Uh, fortunately, the NDAA does not mandate, does not give the president yet the ability to commit the United States to comply with these amendments. It is, at least under these words, voluntary. And Congress should have a say in it when these, when these words are, are ultimately negotiated. Now, let me transfer over to the health issue. Because, again, it's all interconnected. What few people realize is that the World Health Organization is also very much involved in exposure regulations for electromagnetic frequencies, including radio frequencies. Uh, a World Health Organization agency in 2011 classified radio frequency and electromagnetic fields as possibly carcinogenic to humans. It's a class 2B classification. Few people know that, but it was a World Health Organization agency that did that. The World Health Organization, one of its sub-agencies, now has uh, several projects going on. Um, uh, they are reassessing their electromagnetic frequency policies. What we anticipate is that there will be a, a move to get rid of that class 2B classification. What we anticipate is there will be a move uh, to actually liberalize, make even easier all of these emission standards, which we know are actually not biologically based anyway. So the World Health Organization on the one hand is requiring surveillance, and on the other hand, has charge of setting the standards for the wireless aspect of the networks that will be conducting the surveillance. So many of you, I'm sure, can, can figure out that they're not going to be too interested in making sure that this stuff is safe. Uh, probably they're going to be as interested as they were with vaccine. It's going to be the same show. We're going to be given no opportunity to opt out of irradiation, because that is going to be what comprises the surveillance aspect. And then we will be forced into a digital ID and ultimately, a, a, you know, techno totalitarianism. Greg, would you like to add any commentary to that? <clears throat> yes. What Scott is highlighting is the pathway to our digital enslavement. 
And there are road markers along that pathway that allow us to fix this issue. And we can fix it by what Dr. Nass highlighted, which is the ability to opt in compared to opt out. Let me tell you the one thing that the UN is afraid of. They are afraid of state laws like the state of Mississippi or the state of Kansas enacting a law that says it is illegal for a corporation to own or hold your DNA or a government to hold or own your DNA unless you have specifically opted in. Further, to even own unidentified DNA without you opting in. Let me give an example. Imagine that I'm a corporation in Kansas and I purchase Dr. Nass's DNA because she did a blood test and her DNA got into a lab. I purchased that as a third party. Now I, I have in my server, Dr. Nass's DNA and I'm gonna use it for research purposes. Then Kansas passes a law that says, I'm not allowed to own that DNA unless I ask Dr. Nass for her permission. I say, wait, I, I don't even know this is Dr. Nass's DNA. It's de-identified. It doesn't, could be anyone's DNA. The law says, unless I have the person's permission, I can't own it. So now I have to destroy the DNA. That is what the UN is afraid of. That is called an opt-in law. And we don't have those anywhere. No one has done that. And, and so we need to be organizing to make that happen. So that is on the road. That's one of the solutions on the road that we can get to. And in the meantime, we're doing these other things. We are exposing this issue. We are litigating our opt-out rights to show really to, to, to flex our muscles a little bit to gain these rights, but really to show the futility of the opt-out. And Dr. Nass provided a great example of the futility of an opt-out. Many of these privacy laws are written to really enshrine what the government and corporations already want to do, uh, which is not real privacy. Um, Dr. Ness brought up the mayor of L.A., and I'd like to highlight, and, and Scott also brought up this, uh, the uh, biometric ID, and Amy, you brought up the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals in the intro. All three of those come together in L.A. So L.A. independently committed itself to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, that means that in America, we, we haven't signed on to these sustainable development goals. They're not like official law or anything. But L.A. did, the city of L.A., they went out of their way to pass a law saying that they are going to implement the sustainable development goals. And one of them, target 16.9, calls for the provision of a digital ID for all, including newborns. Your baby gets a biometric digital ID by the year 2030. That's our, that's our deadline, that's our red line. So we're leading up to that. So that means we need to be doing all of these things. We need to be exposing the dystopia, we need to be litigating, we need to be organizing and, and getting these state legislators to understand that this is, this is our moment, this is our time. Um, you know, I asked Polly Tommy, what is the goal of the Great Free Set? And she gave me a wonderful answer. It's for the people to have the ability to say no. It is so true that because um, we know this from the vaccine issue that there's only so much debate you can have with the authorities. You know, you say, well, I don't want the vaccine. And here's why. And the authority says, well, you have to take the vaccine. And here's why, you know, you get to a point where the debate ends. And then the question is just, can you say no or not? You know, do you have the right to say no? 
Well, that's what's happening with this digital ID and with the rollout of all these technologies. We need to have the right to say no, like a hard no. And, 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 that's, and a hard no means that's the opt-in um, uh, law that I'm talking about. Because as Scott eloquently highlighted, the Fourth Amendment, our privacy rights, our, our right to autonomy, as Scott highlighted, is really our safeguard. It all comes down to this. Because if the government has the ability to monitor your face and your voice in your home, they will always find something. They will always find a way to get you, to either remove your children through CPS or through some other method. So the Fourth Amendment, just keeping them out of your home in the first place, that is, that's the line. That's the bright red line. And this is all coming to a head right now. So I think there will be a great reset, but not in the way the WHO thinks. I think it's going to be a great free set. I think we are, we are going to win. And when we do this great free set, we are going to gain these opt-in rights and it will be glorious. Thank you, Greg. Yes, I believe we're going to win too. We will rise up and resist. Um, I want to go to Scott with some questions because this is such a slow encroachment that I think most people are not picking up on the social conditioning that's already happening. How many people have an iPhone where they have already enabled their facial recognition to unlock it and they think nothing of it? Or like we talked about sitting down to a restaurant in order to order food, you have to scan. I mean, let's, let's talk about some of the things that people may not be realizing or already happening that are pushing us further into this dystopian. I mean, how bad are these QR codes? Why are they bad? What are they conditioning us to believe and to do? And what will it lead to? Scott, I'd love to hear uh, from you on that. Well, first of all, in all those images, um, what, what, what you have is a device that at present is a proxy for you. Your device is you to the network. And whenever you interact with the network, whether it be to look at one of these uh, menus to call up a menu in the manner being shown here or any other purpose, your, your device, you to the network, is interacting with the network. Not only is it receiving information, it is sending information. It identifies the device. It is able to correlate that information with what they already have about you. And again, if there is ever a biometric digital ID, it will all be stored in that and ultimately perhaps be put in a blockchain form, which means it will never be able to be destroyed. We will no longer have the ability to require that information about us be changed or deleted. But what people need to understand is that every time they interact with the network, in any way, using any digital device, they are not just getting the convenience they think they have. They are throwing themselves up for complete examination. They are, you are telling these people who you are. They're able to look inside your device. They're able to look at all of your cookies. They are able to determine what you have done. And all that it does is yield more information for them to use against you whether it be by way of monetization of your data or, and this is already going on as we know, to try to gently nudge you to make certain consumer 
type choices. That's how they decide what advertisements to send you. That's how they make decisions on sorts of other things. And ultimately, we'll all be put back together so that when you go to that doctor with your teenager, the doctor will get a fuller packet than you know, and the doctor will be instructed, this person does not have HPV, don't let them out the door until they end up with it. So all of this information, yes, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Don't waive your Fourth Amendment. Thank you, Scott. So I'd like to just close with some, you know, last words of encouragement from each of you for our viewers and people who have been tracking this issue for a long time. They look to Children's Health Defense to fight the fight. They're they're looking for us to have a position on this in the world to stop these injustices, to stop this infringement on our fundamental rights, our God-given abilities to live as free people in the world. Um, and to stop this global governance and tyranny that is coming fast and hard. And we are doing everything in our power to do that. So I'd love to close with some, um, you know, closing thoughts from each of you in terms of how can we encourage people to rise up and resist? How can we encourage people to stand firm in all of this? Um, So Meryl, if you'd like to go first. Sure. Um, So in the um, proposed WHO IHR amendments, they claim that they are going to get informed consent from countries instead of from people. Well, there is no law anywhere that says informed consent can come from countries. So what people need to realize is we do have laws on the books enshrining informed consent. We have other laws and, and government policies that ignore that. But those laws do exist. And we need to demand that they be enforced. The, the WHO doesn't get to collect our DNA without our informed consent. So so that's an important issue, and um, we need to make legislators aware of the issue. There are 48 members of the House of Representatives who came out and signed H.R. 79, which is get the United States out of the WHO. 49 is a big number. It's not nearly big enough. They're all Republicans. But it's a big number to start with. So 49 understand what the problem is. And now we need you to talk to all of your reps and senators and your local people and make this problem understood. Because once people understand it, nobody wants it. The only way they can get this through if they is if they do it in the dark when nobody knows what's going on. So I would really urge you to to inform yourself. Look at all the these pieces of information we've put up on CHD TV and in the Defender and um, other videos that have been created to to educate you. Um, The other thing is that there are low-tech ways of protecting yourself as well, and these aren't going to work unless everybody, you know, a lot of people do them at the same time. But you can use paint <laughs> to cover a camera, right? If they've got cameras on the street looking at everybody, you can spray paint on it or you can spray something else on it, you know, even soap bubbles, and that is going to stop it. Um, you, you know, wires can be cut. There are lots of low-tech ways to stop this whole network. And we have to realize that um, at the right time, those things can be done. It may also take down the grid, so we have to do it carefully. But um, 
there are very few of them. They think with high technology, they're going to be able to lord it over 8 billion people, and they can't. A few thousand people cannot lord it over 8 billion people, no matter how much technology they had. So don't worry. Just get, make your plans, do what you need to do to convince the people around you, and, and work with us. Right. I just want to say, educate everyone, you know, share and do things within your legal bounds. I just want to be able to state that. Uh, Scott, any perspective from you? Yes, there are several things that people can do from an advocacy perspective and then in, in their own mind. First of all, I, absolutely. We need to be talking to our local representatives, whether they're city council or county. We need to be talking to our state elected officials. Because under our, under the U.S. constitutional form of, you know, we are a constitutional republic, the states still have immense power. Health is one of the traditional police powers of the states. At present, the federal government does not, in fact, have the power to dictate health issues at the state level. They can recommend they can give incentives, but they are the federal government isn't the one that will instill a, a vaccine mandate, for example. It is at the state level. So you need to talk to your state representatives. And then, of course, you need to talk to your national representatives. You need to tell them, I do not appreciate the surveillance state that is forming around us. I will not comply with your efforts to control but you as our legislators, you must protect our individual rights as granted by the Constitution of the United States and each state. And you must make sure that, for example, any of these UN activities or WHO activities do not purport to override national, state, or local law. You can make all the agreements you want, but a treaty cannot violate the Constitution. Then, in your own life, you know, I say this so much, and, and look, I'm, 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 I love technology. Uh, you know, I, 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 I love the Internet. I, I, I even like mobile devices. They, they do provide many conveniences. You know, the simplest is having a map while you drive. I mean, I don't have to paper map anymore while I'm driving. Okay, we like these things. But we have to be willing, in order to protect our privacy, to give up some of these conveniences. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember. Um, in fact, I didn't even have inside plumbing in our house until I was about 13. Certainly didn't have air conditioning for a long time. We were one of the last ones to get a color TV. And we had a party line telephone for a very long time. So, you know, you can actually get by without this stuff. It is going to be necessary to not only say no, but to live the consequences that follow from it. You're going to have to give up some of these so-called conveniences if you want to protect your rights. Frankly, it's not that hard. Every time I get away from my mobile device, when I go out somewhere, walking out in the country, enjoying the scenery, looking at the animals, enjoying my pets or my family, and I don't have my phone, I come back and I feel much better. Each of you should do that too. In other words, 
get a life that's not digital. Be ready to live a normal life that like everybody did for years and years and years before we got set up with these things. Amen. <laughs> yeah. So let me just, um, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't really argue this very well, but Francis Boyle, who is a law professor, says that there are two Supreme Court decisions, Pink and Missouri versus Holland, um, from the 30s and 40s, that did say treaties superseded um, law in the United States. And that with the National Defense Authorization Act um, and certain pieces of the IHR amendments and the proposed treaty, there certainly is a strong legal argument that can be made that that the WHO can, in fact, take over jurisdiction um, in the United States, regardless of uh, other things in the Constitution. So, you know, I need to say that that is questionable. And 48 congressmen were concerned enough to sign this bill to say, get out of the WHO because we do not want to allow the WHO to try to take over jurisdiction during a declared emergency. Can, can, I, can I follow up with that? Uh, yes, it is true that a treaty that is affirmed by a two-thirds vote of the Senate can affect an amendment to a federal statute. That is true. But it must be something that is, in fact, consented to by the Senate. And the way that they're setting up these amendments, they are not looking to bring these back to the Senate for advice and consent. Um, second of all, yes, they can change a statute, functionally amend a federal statute but it cannot overrule the Constitution. There are Supreme Court cases that say that as well. Um, further, when we are advocating to Congress on what they should do about these who treaties, there is an existing mechanism for the Congress, even if it does consent to these treaties, to insert what is called a reservation. If they insert a reservation that says we consent, but it does not change national law in any way, statutory and certainly the Constitution, then it will not be able to have the force of law in the United States to the extent it is contrary with other existing law. We need a reservation at least. Yes, um, but... Also, in the NDAA, it says it is the sense of Congress that we're going to follow the One Health approach and we're going to go along with pandemic preparedness. And that what that One Health approach is, as you pointed out, is basically turning over jurisdiction to the WHO. It, it assigns it, it does adopt that theory. I'm granting you that. And it does assign to the president and many administrative agencies the authority uh, to negotiate these and to indeed implement some of them, as the CDC has already done. You will find many One Health issues already embedded in CDC rules and publications. But the NDAA does not pre-bless these two WHO documents. They will still have to be brought back for approval by the Senate, at least. Right, which is although, why our although the treaty can go into effect um, after somebody from the State Department or DHHS signs it, because there's a very peculiar provision that says it can be made active on a preliminary basis without ratification. 
So, oh. and, and Fran Boyle says this is the only treaty he's ever seen, ever, anywhere, that has that provision in it. I've seen that provision, and my contention is it can have no effect in the United States until the Senate affirms it. Let's hope. Well, this is why we've been covering this every week. The last three Friday roundtables have been dedicated to what they're trying to do here between, you know, the World Health Organization, the UN, and all of these global entities that are trying to control us. So I'm very thankful for all of your perspective on this because it is a really complex topic. Um, and as we're discussing, there's lots of things to evaluate and to understand and for us to be ahead of and to stop. So I'm very thankful for all of your work on this, uh, Dr. Nass, and of course for you, Scott and Greg. And I want to come back to you, Greg, for some closing comments on, you know, how everyone can rise up and resist and stand firm uh, in all of this. Yes. Well, <clears throat> Scott highlighted that it's going to be state law under our republic that solves this uh, for the reason that public health and many other aspects of governance under the police powers are matters of state law. And that's where our primary allies are. And so from a legal perspective, we need state law to give us these opt-ins. And the only way we're going to get there is through allies. And this is where CHD really excels. Um, we are connected with other groups. We have a a, a lot of clout in order to move forward the advocacy in order to expose the dystopia. You see it with the defender and we have the ability to litigate in court to help further show what the limits of our rights are. Sometimes it's not just about showing how much you can win. It's also about showing what the judges are not willing to do because then, because then that provides a reason to justify state legislation. And so in order to gain that, um, in order to gain that ground for the win, we need to be really healthy. We need to look good and we need to have these allies. And so that's what people can do is, you know, be healthy and ally with people in your, in your state government so that when the time comes that we need to exercise this power, this fundamental power that we have as the people, we can do that. Right. And to connect locally with your community, everyone has people within their community they can network with, know your farmer, know your food sources, know people who can help you to homeschool, know every which way that you can become less reliant on the government and the systems that they want us to become enslaved in. Um, so I just want to thank all of you guys for coming on the show. It was such a fantastic show. Thank you so much for all of your time, your intellect, your passion, your heart. Dr. Merrill Nass, uh, Scott McCullough, and Greg Glazier. Really wonderful to have you guys on today and to discuss all of this. Thank you. Um, I'd like to just remind everyone about our current campaign, Exit the Who. Uh, we have been sending out action alerts. We've been sharing videos and memes. If you haven't taken action, please do so. This entire campaign is to educate and bring awareness to this global power grab. We need everyone taking part. So go to childrenshealthdefense.org forward slash the great free set. We'll have a link directly in the show notes. So you can just click and go. We have an action alert. We need everyone to sign. You can share this video and you can sign our health freedom bill of rights. This was actually modeled after the uh, local people in Collier County, Florida, 
who put forth a Health Freedom Bill of Rights, an ordinance at the local county level, looking to stop any third party intervention from the WHO, from the UN, from anyone um, that would take away you know, national sovereignty and individual and fundamental rights. So this is one of the most important campaigns we've done to date here at CHD. We need everyone taking part in sharing this. So just a reminder to do that. Also like to um, just remind you a couple of things coming up. We're going to be ending on an exclusive interview with the amazing Dr. Paul Merrick uh, from behind the scenes. He was there at the Better Way conference that the World Council for Health put on in Bath, UK last week. You're going to hear a wonderful video of Dr. Merrick talking all about protocols to help the vaccine injured, the horrors of the spike protein shedding, and the wonders of dietary intervention uh, and other manipulation and more. And stay tuned and come right back here tomorrow morning for CH, uh, Good Morning CHD to hear the latest updates from our Canadian doctors, Dr. Chris Shaw, Stephen Maltos, and Charles Hoff, with special guest, Dr. Eric Payne. Thank you so much for everyone tuning in today. Please share this show. Thank you for everything that you guys do and following us and getting the word out and hope, hope you all have a great weekend. Take care. Let's take a moment to thank the people who make intergalactic distribution of this show possible. Mystical Wares in Mount Vernon, Washington. Yes, folks, Mystical Wares is where the Jedi Knights shop when they have their annual field trip to planet Earth. After annihilating battalions of stormtroopers and blowing up the Death Star, they deserve an all-out shopping spree. And their supplier of choice is Mystical Wares in Mount Vernon, Washington, an oasis of light in an otherwise dark universe. I spoke to Master Yoda the other day and asked him where he buys his shungite. He replied, tell you I will and not belabor. Mystical Wares. I also pick up spare parts for my light saber. So there you have it, folks. If it's good enough for Master Yoda and the Jedi elite, it's certainly good enough for the rest of us. Mystical Wares in Mount Vernon, Washington. Online or on location, you'll be sure to give them a standing ovation. I am Ani, mad as the day is long, Avedisian. This was Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again, my darlings, get involved in local politics, learn to identify the dirty tricks within the matrix, and above all, let the spirit inhabit the human. And now we have the dark journalists on a different subject altogether. Enjoy. Well, maybe not, but it's definitely different than the last one. Thanks for being here. We did a show on Wednesday all about the UFO file wars, and that included this uh, new whistleblower, Crush, and um, you know all of his connections to the former CIA whistleblowers and all the intel people wrapped up in the TTSA op around the UFO threat file operation. Um, the whole goal behind that program is in lockstep with the media is to give us a false disclosure and to let the media create along uh, with the intelligence factions, that emergency UFO threat um, so that they can exercise emergency powers. In the meantime, they can build up a vast government infrastructure to fight the aliens because, you know, those people in politics, they're the good guys, (laughs) (laughs) as we find out. Tonight, what I'm going to try to do is hone so many of the uh, things that we brought up in that report and what I brought up today on Alex's show. And um, a lot of that has to do with the nature and the character of the obfuscation around the UFO file, which I think is crucial to understand. And uh, we also have a mystery school aspect, which needs to be brought in. And this is left out completely by the kind of run over the cliff UFO reporting that we see 
all over social media right now. And, um, you know, it's very interesting, of course. Uh, I saw someone earlier, uh, Schellenberger, who's one of the Twitter files people. And we know the Twitter files thing was um, something with Taibbi and Schellenberger, and they were exposing these things. But it was basically like, you know, <laughs> pretty lightweight stuff. And uh, it didn't really go anywhere. There's a little slap on the wrist here and there. And the problem is that um, some of the people who come forward on this, they just hop onto the topic because it's the thing that's happening. It's the thing the news is reporting. And remember, a lot of that news cycle is controlled by the intelligence agencies. So it's, it's hardly fair to say that it's an organic process. Um, but, you know, their whole thing about, well, we'll go to the facilities and get the craft. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And um, what's been interesting is if you don't look at the large infrastructure that inf- affects every part of that national security state and the government inside and learn that there's 80 years of obfuscation by the intelligence agencies and NASA and others around the UFO file. You're not just going to roll into some facility and they're going to give you a craft. If they do anything like that, it's going to be one that they made and they're going to have a CIA uh, intel whistleblower, you know, like Elizondo or this guy Grush who's an NRO uh, intelligence whistleblower. And they're going to do the same dance. You know, why would the intelligence agencies give you UFO disclosure? They don't want to do that. They want to keep the advantage for themselves in their corporate interests. And that gets us into a conversation about um, what the Central Intelligence Agency is all about and how it was set up. And I'm going to go into that tonight because it's crucial. After all, it was founded in S&C, you know, Sullivan Cromwell, <laughs> by some lawyers who were involved in international finance using the architecture of a Nazi general uh, and how he ran his intelligence files. So hardly uh, the model that uh, you would get for transparency of any kind. And what you see is a lot of people around uh, the UFO thing, you know, like I said, hopping on it for reporting reasons without going deeper. And I think it's important, actually, that uh, people do get the right idea about what's going on. And it's great to get more people involved around the UFO file. But you have to do it without coming in through the CIA door or the UFO threat door or the media door, which just makes it like, hey, climate change. The aliens are going to teach us about climate change. <laughs> you know, so they're going to make you basically a, a new Netflix series and this is basically how that will play out. That has nothing to do with actual uh, disclosure. And in fact, it's a very cynical effort that's been devised in the background. So tonight's special report is the UFO campaign 2024, RFK Jr. and Trump, President Trump, real disclosure. Before we go any further, of course, there's a big development in um, the legal issues around President Trump and the feds trying to put him away before he runs away with another presidential election in 2024. Uh, So they're putting everything on the line to take down President Trump. And on the other side, they're putting everything, um, you know, pedal to the metal to get Bobby Kennedy out of the race. I'm going to show you how they're doing this. The Trump stuff uh, is very immediate and um, something we've been tracking. You know, if you go back to before (laughs) this guy was president, I was looking at stuff. He was on the cover of GQ, you know, it was like Success Magazine, Success Inc. They love Trump um, back in the day. And as we know, like, you know, the Clintons went to his wedding and all this stuff. And then he became a super enemy number one when he got into politics. The America first thing got us out of really bad trade deals uh, with China and talked about securing the border. And, you know, so he was representing um, a, a certain faction in that deeper structure that had to do with the America first thing, Fortress America and this whole piece. Um, and, you know, I asked Professor Scott about this. So of course, I always recommend Professor Scott's. Um, deep state books. So American Deep State is the book that's sitting over there underneath the camera. Um, but American Deep State goes into some depth about this. And one of the things I asked him was, where, where did that faction come from? And he was telling me that it came out of the American Manufacturers Group. And they were a group that was really obsessed with keeping all the manufacturing in America. 
And uh, so there's a large story that played out there. But uh, those forces were behind Trump, and he had the edge in 2016. There was also an unspoken piece about Trump's knowledge and access to ideas around aerospace. Uh, his advanced knowledge of the UFO file through his uncle, John Trump, is something we've brought out on this program, and it needs to be played into all the things that are happening to him. And uh, I've been trying to go on the record about 2024 in general with the campaign. Both campaigns, as I've been saying since Bobby launched his in April, um, they both need to get on the UFO file because these disclosures, as I've predicted, the false disclosures are coming out hard and heavy. There's going to be a huge confusion around the UFO file, and it's going to be a major political football in 2024. Both candidates need to get ahead of it. And I see signs already that Bobby Kennedy is taking some of that advice and uh, the Trump forces need to also go deep on this and show some of that knowledge and expertise. And also remember, Trump was the president. He knows going in about the UFO file, but once in there, he had even more access. This is something he needs to use. And the transparency around the UFO file is going to be a huge issue because when you come into that 2024 election, you're going to be looking at false disclosure on overdrive. As we're seeing in just this short period of time, we had Gary Nolan, the immunologist who claims to be a contactee and you know, is suddenly the focus of all these intel um, pieces whenever they talk about the UFO file. They roll this guy out for some reason. Well, um, Nolan, as we know, is friends with Fauci. I've shown his stuff before, high-fiving Fauci on Twitter. So many people came to me after that who were fans of Nolan and said, that never happened. You lied about that. And then I would send them the, the Twitter post, and you just wouldn't hear back from them. What do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> they have to go back and check it, and it's there. You know, I mean, Nolan blocked me, but they can still see it. So, you know, this is the nature of what the thing. It's like a slow realization. It's like, you know. Um, they're going to have to have that realization in their own mind about it. And it's not my job to deal with the psychological ramifications of you losing your Nolan hero, but that is uh, part of this operation. And there's going to be a lot of people who will build themselves up in a very superficial way around this UFO thing and almost get into kind of a religious thing, you know? So I caught um, earlier, as I mentioned, the Schellenberger thing was like that. It was a superficial treatment around the UFO thing. And he was like, we can just walk in to these facilities and get these craft. I was told by high-level military sources that there are 14 alien craft. <laughs> Let me tell you, they have a lot more than 14. Maybe they manufactured a lot more than 14. Okay, so um, nobody on the intelligence side is going to give you anything, Michael Schellenberger and any of these people. They will not. You're going to have people in threads and whistleblowers and things, and once in a while, you might get lucky and get a particular thread to follow. But they are not going to hand you the UFO file that they've been holding on to for dear life and have killed people and presidents over because you're such a good reporter. It's not going to happen. So I don't know. Um, there's a lot of that going on. I've, I pointed this out before that there's a kind of an attitude. That it, it develops out of these podcasts and Twitter and, you know, the Rogan show and Eric Weinstein and all that. It's, it's like they can build a, um, you know, they think they, they can put together a think tank an intellectual hierarchy around the UFO file and be, you know, the people who talk about it and, and copyright this, you know, it's like the Corbell copyright. Every time you see this stupid black and white UFO, we have much better pictures of UFOs than what Corbell puts out there. So we need a whole different conversation about this stuff and all, every, every voice is included, but it doesn't get sectioned off in this way. And it doesn't fall. The first rule is no CIA involvement. Uh, I think that's pretty reasonable. I mean, the CIA has misled the public for 80 years enough is enough, right? So you would completely discount anything that's Intel oriented and uh, you have so many resources on the ground with civilian organizations, um, and you might once in a while run across ex-military people, et cetera, but you don't um, get into this intel game of like, here's my little secret, but, you know, I'm Lou Elizondo, and I'm keeping my Penguin book contract, you know, until this comes out. You won't learn. Then you'll understand why I lied so much in the setup. No, <laughs> you know. So um, this is a well-funded operation for their kind of disclosure, and it doesn't add up to anything. We need to be straight up with that right off the bat. Everyone, you're watching the Dark Journalist Special Report. 
very interesting day here. Friday, June 9th, the indictment against uh, former President Trump, who is now the leading candidate for president, the Republican nomination. We're going to go deep into this. I'm going to read from that indictment and some of the things that are going on there. Um, I also am, uh, you know, coming off the heels of doing the Alex Jones show today. Some of the things that we got into there, I think, are important for the audience out there to grasp. And I'm trying to bring that subject home that the 2024 election is going to be crucial, of course, in the second part and the UFO file interaction with that. Uh, in the second part of tonight's program, we're going to be taking your questions. We're just going to go about 90 minutes tonight, special report mode. In the meantime, Ms. Olivia, what's up? Mark Hofstian says, what are the top secret docs that Trump was indicted for are UFO related? Will that be, quote, disclosed? <laughs> well, see, that's an excellent point. This is a great question. Now, the Mar-a-Lago documents, it's never actually been specified what the nature of the violation was. As a matter of fact, they've decided not to go after him for the classified document aspect in terms of is it classified, is it not classified. According to Judge Napolitano, who watches these things pretty closely, he says the legal aspect is focusing much more on the Espionage Act. And uh, if those charges are to add up, the idea being like, oh, Trump made this easy for a foreign power to come and grab these classified files at his um, Mar-a-Lago compound. Well, <laughs> that's, that's very hard to prove. And the other thing is we know for sure that Joe Biden had all these secret documents uh, stuffed into a garage in Delaware, you know, uh, with very little security. So you're going to have to get him too, I guess. No precedent. What do you do in that case? <laughs> Suspend the election and get the COG commander Van Herc in there. By the way, he's got a big Roswell connection, so that really fits. Um, but yeah, it's very important to understand the nature of uh, the classified documents. What did he actually have with him? What was the hunt on? What were they looking for? And I don't think we got any of those answers. Um, that indictment started off, they said, oh, there's seven counts. Now, the latest one I read is 37 counts in the indictment. I mean, this is really absurd and beyond absurd. I'm going to read um, some of that here tonight as well. And I'm going to show how the UFO file aspect is already active through the campaign, uh, through the figure of Ron DeSantis and his association with Robert Bigelow. And Bigelow is pledging every penny of his entire hickey bank of billions uh, for Bigelow Aerospace behind this guy. And the question has to arise, why? You know, why is Bigelow so obsessed with our friend? What did DeSantis promise him? It's a really good question. We're going to get into that tonight. A couple of quick things here I wanted to show since I mentioned DeSantis, and then we'll get on to Trump. Um, from financiers to UFO believers, scores of GOP megadonors are flocking to DeSantis, okay? That's how he got into the campaign, and a lot of the money that was coming in, $10 million, $20 million, all from Bigelow. It's quite fascinating indeed. Um, and in this article, they're talking about the... Uh, you know, how he was having trouble with his launch and, you know, he had a disastrous launch and all the rest. But they've been pumping up DeSantis. They think that he's, you know, by destiny going to have the Republican nomination, even though technically he's 40 points behind President Trump when it comes to the actual counting of the votes, which is all that matters. Well, they think they can lock Trump up and just install this Bushite guy who's using a lot of posturing, uh, Trump-style posturing. And, you know, there's no question he did some good things in Florida, but the way he's pursued, uh, you know, in this fashion at the age of 44, the presidency, when it's very clear, it'll be wide open field and he'll be the favorite in 2028. Um, the fact that he needs to jump in shows he's being manipulated into position and uh, it's not a good, it's not a good sign around DeSantis. Okay. A couple of quick things. Uh, none of these problems are shaking the confidence of Robert Bigelow. This Time Magazine, the hotel tycoon and aeronautics executive. Now we know him very well because he's the guy who used to own Skinwalker Ranch. He's the guy who uh, runs Bigelow Aerospace, wanted to do hotels in space. He went on 60 Minutes and said aliens are right under our noses. And famously, he's also the one who said that there were uh, firefights with aliens in South America, and we lost a lot of people. He never explained where he got that info or what he was talking about. But, you know, he's the kind of guy who could get that kind of info. 
What was he talking about? I'd still like to know. Um, Robert Bigelow, the hotel tycoon and aeronautics executive who reveals to Time that he is the largest donor by far to Never Back Down, Inc., a super PAC backing DeSantis' unofficial campaign for president. Well, it's official now. It was unofficial during this article. Um, he's also the single largest donor last year to DeSantis' 2022 re-election bid, confirms that he had already donated a little more than $20 million. And he says that's just a start. Now, after this, uh, when I went through some of the donations, I found that he said he would pledge everything and go hungry <laughs> in order to get DeSantis in. Now, uh, Bigelow wants in on this whole breakaways, breaking back in, that is getting the UFO redeveloped technology out into the public, the stuff that they've been hoarding in the background. And Bigelow is one of the people who set up very well. He's been working on that redevelopment. He had the contracts from Harry Reid, you know, the whole um, OSAP thing, the phony $22 million thing that they didn't allow out to other contractors. And um, so in the background, there's been a whole push and pull with him. Now they had a bunch of people lined up to lay out this uh, UFO technology, X technology piece. And, uh, of course, Musk was right in the middle of it with SpaceX. That was crucial. Bigelow, aerospace was a big one. Then it was Branson and, you know, all the things he was going to do with space tourism. They decided, ah, eh, no. And now that's bankrupt. Interestingly enough, uh, he's doing a big undersea thing. So they might be like, hey, you do the Discover Atlantis thing. We'll, we'll send Musk up into space and they get their bases covered. Um, and then uh, the other guy, of course, is our friend Blue Origin, you know, Mr. Moon guy, Jeff Bezos, who... Um, owns the Washington Post, Amazon, Whole Foods, you name it. This guy's right in the middle of it. And so he's the other one who's in the, the middle of all this. But um, they're looking to roll all this stuff out and not explain what happened to the 50 years in between the manned moon missions and now. And, uh, of course, they've been talking about this Artemis mission, which is the first women in space and all this kind of stuff. And they definitely have a plan for going back to the moon now, although they keep moving that date back. Pence originally, when uh, the Trump administration was in office, said this stuff was happening for sure with NASA in 2024. And now they're like, well, you know, Biden administration's like, no, maybe it's only 2026, 2027. <laughs> and they'll keep backing that up, I'm sure, as we go. But um, watching uh, Bigelow's transformation is interesting. One other line from this article, I think, gives us a clue. One time Trump enthusiast Bigelow says he could no longer stand behind the former president after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. He lost me as a supporter, blah, blah, blah. And uh, then they talk about Alvin Bragg and that whole thing. Now, that's fine. He can turn on Trump um, and, you know, there's no reason for him to hang out on Trump if he doesn't agree with his policies anymore. But the incredible, you know, I'll, I'll eat tuna fish and like give my billions to DeSantis is a lot different uh, than just switching your support. There's something going on there. And since we know Bigelow is Mr. UFO there hanging out in New Mexico and Nevada and um, that our friend DeSantis is on the Space Coast, watch for a big crisscross there. You've got UFO money right now in the middle of the 2024 election. The Trump campaign can't be shy about bringing in what they know about the UFO file, making it front and center, talking about it. Uh, Bobby Kennedy has gone on the record and he said some good things. Now he's out there talking about the UFO thing. This is good because the Bobby Kennedy presidency is the thing they probably fear the most right next to uh, Trump, which is why they're trying to put Trump in prison. Uh, Bobby Kennedy carries the legacy and the knowledge and also the history of ex-protect assassinating his uncle uh, and his dad. And there's a whole Howard Hughes aerospace redux piece in there with Hughes too in Musk. So this gets very tricky. And we know that Musk right out of the gate during uh, campaign 2024, the person that he got on first in spaces, and that's crucial, first counts, even though they had technical issues, was DeSantis. It was not Bobby. He did host Bobby later, but, you know, later is later. All right, so I'm going to move in and read some of the Bobby Kennedy part. Before I go any further, Olivia, you're up. <laughs> 
Um, Antisocial says, how did Trump and uh, RFK Jr. address the UFO file without any proof? Oh, well, I mean, they have, they, they have the means and the resources to get proof. Um, but approaching it is, first, you use the bully pulpit of bringing it out. So Trump was great for this in 2016. He brought the JFK assassination piece out in his battle with Ted Cruz. He brought the 9-11 attacks out in his battle with Jeb Bush. He was not holding back. That broke the dam of so many of these subjects. It's a short memory, but you know, in that period, like around 2016, you really couldn't talk about the JFK assassination or um, you know, 9-11 in, in a political campaign, never. But uh, Trump was just arrogant enough <laughs> to bring these things to the fore, and it helped. I think it made a big difference. Um, now we've got some other interesting things in the background because the person who's running Bobby Kennedy's campaign, at least in this early stage, I hope he gets a little more muscle as the campaign goes along, um, is Dennis Kucinich, the former congressman. One of the things that he's famous for is bringing up UFOs in a presidential debate that he was in. So uh, no slouch there on the UFO file. Bobby has a lot on his shoulders uh, with this because the Democratic Party has gone so far over the cliff. And he's dedicated as a Kennedy to pull that party back, but also to deal with the entire country. So it's almost an impossible task uh, that he set for himself. But when you think of the mold of RFK and JFK that's behind him and the incredible things that he's achieved in his own life and as an environmental lawyer, his campaign is historic. And if anyone can pull it off, RFK Jr. can. Um, so we're in the middle of that. Now, here's an interesting development in that campaign, which is on June 20th in New Hampshire. There's going to be a speech, a foreign policy speech, and it is going to be on the anniversary of the speech that President Kennedy gave to American University, but some 60 years later. Now, many people have said that it was this speech, along with other things, that got President Kennedy killed because he went outside the State Department and didn't get the speech approved. And he talked about how uh, we need to re-examine our attitudes towards the world and not try to force the world through a Pax Americana with American weapons of war. All the things that the military-industrial complex, that machine which is still running things, get a trillion dollars a year that's on the record. God knows what's off the record. You know, for every $1, supposedly there's $3 off the record. <laughs> um, so, you know, Kennedy was putting us on a different footing, and he said we must reexamine our attitudes towards Russia. In the final analysis, um, you know, we can't afford to let ourselves win the victory where even the fruits, uh, win a war where even the fruits of victory will be ashes in our mouth. Well, <laughs> that's really putting it where it is. And Kennedy understood war. He'd been in war. So um, they looked at that speech on the CIA side and that deep state side, and they just said, you know, that's, that's the end for Kennedy. Um, that and Kennedy's reach into the UFO file and wanting to share it with the Russians, you know, this, that crisscross there with NASA, uh, deep NASA and that whole paperclip piece attached to the space program. And um, they got together and removed Kennedy and installed their guy, Senator NASA, <laughs> as LBJ was called. And uh, he gave them all the deep state victories that they needed, including the green light to go into Vietnam and uh, really laid out the course for the country in a totally backward direction. But Robert Kennedy grabbing this anniversary and doing the speech 60 years later is signaling um, where his foreign policy would be coming from as he has signaled he would get us out of Ukraine and start a peace process. He does not believe in the Ukraine war. And uh, it's very important, I think, that we understand the stakes of what happens if we don't get either Bobby or Trump in the next election. This is no time for the kind of cynicism that you hear around the presidential races that whoever gets in, it doesn't matter. Well, oddly enough, this time it doesn't, you know, it, it seriously does. And um, so that speech is going to be important, and that kicks off the foreign policy end of this. Now, they've been going after Robert Kennedy. They're starting to raise little things like his dating history. Well, he kept a little black book where he was dating all these women and all this stuff. Now they have a new one, which is Robert Kennedy Jr. says he has conversations with dead people. 
That's right. <clears throat> so they misconstruing things that he's talking about where he says, oh, you know, I have a meditation practice and, you know, all these types of things. So they're looking for any sort of little excuses they can get their hands on to make this happen. Well, they just want to call him crazy. Yes. Fringe. Um, and- well, he's a crazy anti-vaxxer, right? Like, <laughs> right. That's it. Exactly. And how uh, accurate his book has turned out about, you know, the real Dr. Fauci, which is an amazing indictment of this official um, who, you know, led basically the COVID op. And, um, you know, that takes a lot of guts. So uh, all the things that, you know, considered when we look at Bobby Kennedy, we have a real uh, someone who's really shown a lot of metal in the political arena. And I think that's crucial because we're so lucky to have Bobby Kennedy out there running for president. And we're lucky to have Trump standing strong against the deep state. Also, the deep state wants them both. They want to stop Bobby and they want to put Trump in jail. And um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., this is an important thing that happened in the middle of all this hubbub around UFOs firing around. He went on the record and he said, remember UFOs were the very essence of conspiracy theory. The term was practically invented for it. People who spoke out were ridiculed and their careers dis- destroyed. Our government did that. This is someone who gets it. You know, um, He's saying more there about the UFO file than Trump has. Let's not forget Trump knows a great deal, a great deal about this. But I think it's important um, that we lay it out there in relation to Bobby, that he put that there because we have, as part of the Deep X research, the fact that the groups um, in X Protect and Dulles, who uh, John Kennedy fired because he knew that they were trying to get him into a war with Cuba and were conducting illegal operations, he fired them at great risk to himself, um, that whole branch of CIA that was engaged in this and the people associated with Dulles. That was an incredible house cleaning. And uh, it's a historical moment. And, uh, you know, they, they in their turn took their revenge. Before I leave the Kennedy uh, subject and go to the Trump piece, I want, and, you know, we want to put on the record, as I do, and I'm going to fire this clip around again. We'll, we'll take another clip of this with Douglas Caddy uh, and fire this around because I feel that Caddy still hasn't got his due. Uh, he's the Watergate lawyer who put on the record that uh, E. Howard Hunt, who was his best friend, told him in private before he went to prison that Kennedy was assassinated over the UFO file. That is crucial. It's historic, and it needs to be part of any piece of disclosure You know, when they have these hearings and stuff and they're like, we need more money to study UFOs. Here's something you can study right away. How, what kind of processes were in place? Was there a group inside the government that I call X-Protect that was destroying reputations and assassinating leaders who were trying to open up the UFO file? That's real disclosure, you know, not, oh, we might've had 12 alien craft in a hangar, you know, too bad we couldn't get them, but this guy said they were there, you know, Uh, that doesn't really help. Caddy has stuck to his guns uh, since he revealed this some seven years ago. And, uh, you know, he was there. He's he's the lawyer for the Watergate 7. And he went on the record saying E. Howard Hunt had said this. And uh, it's crucial because Hunt is that figure who was the top CIA spymaster agent uh, for the country in the 60s and the late 50s. So this was someone in a position to know why would he tell Caddy that in private? You know, it wasn't for broadcast or anything like that. It just so happened that Caddy remembered it kept it with him for 30 years. And then finally he said, I knew it was important. One other thing about Kennedy's he's giving a speech there up in New Hampshire recently. And to show you like the level that this guy's on Kennedy ended his speech by recounting the 1960s obedience experience uh, experiments by Yale psychologist Stanley Milgram, which were funded by the national science foundation, but which Kennedy said without offering evidence were actually part of the CIA's mind control research program. Uh, they certainly were. He was previously attributed the claim to University of Wisconsin historian Alfred McCoy. And McCoy knew all about this uh, and did a splendid book in 1976 about it. 
In the experiments, college students were asked by a man in a lab coat to shock people in an adjoining room at increasing levels of electricity, even though no shocks were actually administered. An actor on the other side of the wall would scream in pain to suggest a result. The experiments found that about two-thirds of the test subjects were willing to put a stranger's life in danger at the instruction of an authority figure. It's crucial. About one-third refused to do as they were told. It occurred to me many times during the pandemic, said Kennedy, that we're in the middle of a huge Milgram experiment. The people in this room, that's the 33%. For the people who didn't walk out, our job is to continue to fight for their freedom until they wake up out of this trance. Now, that's the Kennedy <laughs> knowledge base. This guy understands what they were doing with the COVID off. So it makes a great case that Kennedy would be able to straighten out so much in this country, in the world. And that needs to be uppermost in our thoughts as we go forward. We know that they're developing through the media a narrative about a UFO threat and that that threat is going to be used to incite a continuity of government program where they already have it laid out, how they would assign regional governors, suspend the Constitution, suspend the elections. They already have Stepford Biden in there barely able to conduct himself in the office of presidency. He's falling over. I mean, it's a disaster for our country. And, you know, it looks terrible on the world stage. But what's going on in the background with the committee that's controlling this Frankenstein experiment uh, is even worse. So, um, you know, the, the kind of transparency that we get in the next election is going to be very important. And I think everything is coming together. And trust me, as I've been putting out there, the UFO file disclosure piece, as you can see, has been ramping up and is going to be central in that 2024 election. Absolutely. The sequence of events, as I laid out in the Wednesday episode, but which kind of come into focus when we talk about the election here, is that we had the NASA UFO hearing. And uh, it was basically kind of a fishing expedition to feel things out and for them to say, we need more money and that kind of thing. But they did, there was a faction in there that debunked the TTSA Go Fast um, video. And the funny thing is that the Go Fast video that they hung their hat on saying, hey, you know, we smuggled this thing out of the Defense Department. And NASA proved that the craft that they were tracking was only going 40 miles an hour. So that whole thing is a disgraced operation. There was a UFO uh, get-together thing at Contact in the Desert in California uh, during this, the week and uh, last weekend into this week. And uh, apparently, you know, from going to kind of a mainline event, that thing has, uh, they've dropped to half capacity and they really, you know, that stuff is looking tired, as is a lot of the old UFO reporting. And what's happening uh, is that these major stories are coming up and that organization of people uh, can't hold it. It's, it's, it's a different paradigm because what they're looking to do now, some of those older UFO researchers, just be vindicated by the fact that, hey, they're talking about UFOs and they're not looking at the UFO invasion by the CIA um, so the whole idea that the intelligence agencies are taking over the topic and that they are, have the talking points for the public and just forget about it, you know, the UFO, uh, researchers have all forgotten that. So the field is collapsing under that and they're just becoming lap dogs where they should be guard dogs, you know, um, for the entire thing. I've watched that take place. I've talked to some of the people involved and the reasoning is absurd. They're, all the normal reasoning has gone out the window. And I've even had a chance to ask them, like, do you really think the UFO file, like you'll get the truth from CIA people? And they're like, this CIA? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. You know, I mean, so that's the level of, of craziness. And uh, I remember during a kind of frenzy of a few years ago, some of these very same people got in touch with me and said, oh, you'll be made to look foolish if you're against these TTSA people. So, you know, this is the weird way that they've whipped them up. But I do, I cite it, even though, you know, you're talking about the UFO thing and, you know, people can take it or leave it, <laughs> you know, or make fun of it, whatever it happens to be. But the truth is that the UFO researchers who had a good track record and had a good history had a real chance to shine here as a wall of information, as a wall of ethics against the deep state operation that took over the UFO file publicly. 
and uh, they, they still have that opportunity. Unfortunately, it, it's, it's largely eluding them, you know, and what you're getting instead is that it takes people who are almost on the cynical side, people who didn't believe in the subject in the first place, they're asking the right questions around the op. <laughs> and so, you know, this is a weird thing where the old skeptics who are wrong, you know, and who have blocked any kind of real UFO disclosure through the cynicism, never really looked at the facts. Those people uh, on the cynical skeptic side, they're asking more of the right questions about, hey, where is this guy, you know, how is this guy any different from any of the other people who've gone on the record and said, oh, I saw all this stuff, but they can't prove any of it. So, um, you know, what we have is the real UFO file, the real craft, the real ex experiences that people have, the incredible mystery around the whole thing, including the apotheum uh, effects that I feel that they've guarded inside of, because that X technology resides in the UFO file. So um, these are the reasons for the intense secrecy around it. So there's an incredible mystery there, and it's intergenerational now. You know, at this point, uh, in terms of conversation around, you know, it's been going on for 80 years. We know in human history it's been going on for thousands. So, um, you know, for me, there's the real mystery there. But then there's the co-opting and the infiltrating of the thing and then turning it into a UFO threat. And we're right in the middle of that. And as you can see with the levers of power, they're able to rifle a story like that and make it go viral without anybody doing the checks and balances on any of it. And it was funny because one of the things I wanted to note about the contact in the desert piece um, you know, was that you'd think, okay, there's a couple of people there who in the past have done pretty decent work on the UFO thing. And when this thing came in, they reviewed it for a half hour. Uh, this was, you know, Grush's thing saying, oh, you know, I think there were dead pilots. I heard that there were dead alien pilots. And I complained to the inspector general saying that I've been treated badly because I tried to get to the bottom of this when I was part of the UAP task force. This guy's whole thing is just a real complete op from beginning to end. It's amazing. And I can show you, I'm going to actually show you how this works. But um, those researchers who only had a half hour to review that stuff instantly got on board with it. They said, oh, this is the greatest thing. We've just made history. We were vindicated. This is a problem. This is a real problem because what happened was the intelligence agency starved that field out of any, um, you know, it, it, they didn't give them the ability in society to thrive on the idea that they were working and doing diligent research on the UFO topic. So there was no prestige involved with it. And what happened is that these people became desperate for that. So now they're being vindicated by the same CIA that held <laughs> them down and held the whole subject down and they're going for it. And they're saying, yeah, you know, high five me, you know, we're here at this historic moment. Let's hold hands and all stuff. That's CIA disclosure it has nothing to do with reality. And what you're doing, actually, is you're feeding what's left of the people who are following you into the lion's mouth of the Central Intelligence Agency that you said during your whole career was holding the truth back. So it's very strange, uh, the whole development there. And in a way, for me, it's like the Twilight Zone. Uh, I've pointed out before that it, it feels maybe more like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so forget about this UFO field that's out there. What you can have is a UFO file research field and that can be very vibrant and bring forward the real mystery and the real truth around thing uh, that's exciting and i think we can we've started um you know the process in this show the work of gg young uh, dr joseph farrell and others the real thing let's get to the real thing okay we have that opportunity miss olivia go for it um jason cases citd suspiciously well timed with a grush debrief story monday afternoon uh <laughs> skunk five says this latest quote disclosure just stinks of a cia psyop i just don't trust cool. it at all Johan Wolf says Grush was definitely, quote, in portrayal during his interview, very clearly uh, speaking prepared lines there. And Mark Hovsepian says this whistleblower hasn't said anything that Philip Corso didn't say 45 years ago. This is a great point. Um, and this is a point that Alex made, and it was right on the money, actually. This is fascinating because, um, you know, 
you get these people and you get like uh, Schellenberger and stuff who don't know anything about it. They might be good researchers and good journalists, don't get me wrong, but they don't know anything about this topic. <laughs> and so when they march in, they sit there and they start talking about how history was made and while wow, we're in a different, you know, it's, we're in a different paradigm now and all this stuff. I would love for those things to be true. They're not. This is just more CIA twaddle. They haven't given you anything. Have they shown you, have they given you a craft <laughs> or dead alien? No, you just have one guy talking about it. And the people behind him, his lawyer is the top cop inside of the intelligence community. It's the inspector general for the intelligence community. That's his lawyer. Okay, so you're getting pure CIA. You don't get any more pure strain of CIA than that. So what are you talking about? You're getting CIA disclosure. I mean, wise up. So um, there's a big problem there with this because nobody is telling people about this because on one hand, you have people like Schellenberger who don't know any better. And then you have the CIA people pushing the op. And the people that they've co-opted along the way. And that was a slow process in the background. I heard about a lot of that co-opting process. But then you have the other people who just want to jump on board because they don't want to say, well, I studied this thing for 30 years and nothing happened. You know, well, it's one of the things that Dolan said was before the TTSA came along, he gave the same speech every year, but nothing ever happened. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Dolan. I'm sorry if your speeches weren't inspiring enough to change the entire paradigm. But that doesn't mean you should jump on board with a phony uh, CIA run TTSA thing, you know. The, the logic escapes me completely, you know, and their big thing is take the win. You know, I don't want the CIA win. I want the truth, you know, so I'm not going to take the win. <laughs> uh, who who would take the win for that? You know, so, you know, uh, it, it eventually I'd probably dawn on them as well. But uh, because it's so dangerous, the way that they've laid this out for the public, uh, you know, on this show, we're going to make a very strong point of it. And we're going to expose the Central Intelligence Agency meddling and taking over the UFO file for the threat operation. And what's that for? Uh, that's for emergency powers because that goes into the continuity of government program. What I will say is um, when you go back and you look at this whole story through the lens of could there have been projections of individuals who were sent here to get to the leadership to tell us, you know, there's there's a very interesting story about President Eisenhower meeting with these kind of Pleiadian looking aliens and um, that uh, when the story was tracked back by of all people, Stanton Friedman. Now, Stanton Friedman, as you know, didn't take any guff, especially uh, people making up stories and things. So he was a nuclear physicist. He was deep in the whole process, and he called the whole thing we were doing with the UFO file Cosmic Watergate. So he understood truth from fiction. One of the things that he did is he tracked the story back, and he realized, aha, this is a real story, and there were real people involved who had to take time apart and, you know, guard a certain airport for this whole interchange to happen. And what they said was that, Oh, President Eisenhower took an unexpected trip to California for dental work. That's the official story. So um, do we have those types of leadership meetings with aliens? In that exchange, the Pleiadians said, we want to give you things to help you spiritually. And supposedly Eisenhower said, can you give us a technology transfer? <laughs> you know, like, can you give us some of your technology? And they said, well, you guys aren't ready for that yet, but we want to warn you, one, stay away from this nuclear side. And two, we can give you a kind of a spiritual philosophy if you know and you can let people know that we're here and doing this with you and he said well if we're not going to get any technology out of it i think we'd rather not freak the population out by letting them know about your presence it would be too upsetting to the culture so let's just forget about it and what's weird is there's another story along this line that uh, there was a group like the grays who appear to be like the grays who offered them the same deal but with the technology <laughs> and that they took that deal and that as a result of that deal that's where we got all of the abductions and that the deal was uh, Eisenhower said, you can, you know, give us the technology and you can abduct a certain amount of people, but you have to let us know. One of the first thing is you have to return them after you abduct them and you have to let us know each and every one.
that you do this to. And that in the beginning, they kept to that. And then after a while, they just started abducting a whole bunch of people and the treaty was not ratified. Now, there's no proof, hard proof for that. But as I said, the original story of Ike meeting with Pleiadians, um, you know, has, according to Stanton Friedman, had some real background to it. Um, we're going to take one more question tonight, Miss Olivia, so make it a good one. Okay. Well, I'm going to use this one as a uh, jump-off point. Okay. Okay, so Vlad the Sanctions Impaler says, DJ, is the alien plot meant to get uh, the U.S. and the rest of the Western world to unite to fight aliens? Um, so obviously this is a money grab and a power grab. Oh, yeah. Um, but there's the idea that we're going to – we already have Space Force. Um, yes. Where, where does a uh, one-world government come in to unite – well, in, in a way, um, they kind of need the alien thing more than anything else to get the one world government, because if something is attacking us um, off world, then we get the whole world united around fighting it off. Um, and one of the things that Reagan came up with in those speeches was, I often wonder, you know, how quickly our differences would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. Well, there is an alien threat. Um it's interesting. When you look back at Reagan, there's a lot unknown there about what he was being given. One of the things, and I brought it up today in the Alex interview, is that he was being shown by scientists. Um, and one of the scientists was Norm Bergeron, who wrote about this later, about these craft that were large, that were re basically refueling or hanging out in the rings of Saturn. And um, he was getting information and intel back about them. And he basically was completely freaked out, which is why he brought it up to Gorbachev at Reykjavik, because he thought these things are going to invade. Um, so there's a, there's a weirdness to that story, but Reagan had a deep knowledge about the UFO piece and uh, he talked about it and he hosted, you know, ET, um, the movie premiere at the white house. And when it was over, he said, everyone in this room knows that that is nonfiction. So, and Spielberg was there and, you know, so there's a weird inside knowledge about the off world aspect or some level. So, um, you know, I think that the, the whole idea of, you know, the world being united against an alien threat is something that was created because I don't think there is an alien threat. I think that the UFO threat has been created. Uh, I don't think that there aren't aliens. I, I don't think that there aren't UFOs. There are, but, um, there, there's not a threat in the way that they're describing it. The whole thing about not like an imminent threat, right? It's not an emergency. Uh, there's been no hostility uh, shown through the years around this. There have been incidents that suggest a huge curiosity about things like our technology, our nuclear bases. Um, but then we also have to remember you've got off-world players, you've got extraterritorial players, you maybe have ancient society players. So who are you dealing with? Who's actually setting off things? Who would benefit from a fake alien invasion? The national security state, the centralization of powers, the emergency powers groups. You see them grabbing emergency powers uh, during the COVID crisis. They grabbed everything. They grabbed so many of the constitutional rights of Americans. It's absurd. Right? No right to assembly. Remember that one? You can't go to church. <laughs> um, so they're, they'd be happy to uh, lay that out. And like I you know, said, the COVID op is just one of these run-ups they could do. I think that um, from an honest estimation of what they're doing, they have a few things in mind. They have um, you know, environmental disasters that they can create or imitate or um, you know, they can see them coming in and they can use it for part of this, oh, we're going to use the climate change emergency so that you don't have any power. Or they could use a gigantic cyber operation and say, this is a gigantic cyber hack and welcome to the blackout. Then we'd be in a totally different situation there. And they would say, well, we're going to rebuild the internet. And guess what? Only the good people get back on the internet. Um, so there are a number of things that can happen. 
of course, the UFO threat, I think, is the thing that they, it's kind of like the pearl in the crown. I think this is the thing that they have relied on, they've developed, and it is the ultimate thing they want to use. Uh, and I think that the continuity of government rules mixed with the UFO file secrecy are the ultimate uh, ingredients for that kind of fascist takeover. Yeah. Uh, David Tremita says, by the way, DJ, did you hear the new Captain America movie just changed its title to Brave New World from the prior name New World Order? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Mm. One other thing I want to say about things that are coming in the future, a lot of the mystery schools have told us about earth changes coming, and they've told us about land rising and how this is going to be a crucial part of things that are taking place. I want that to be inserted as part of the conversation when we're looking out into the future and weighing these things out, because it's not out there. There's a reason why these scientists aren't talking about land that's rising, because land that's rising, um, one, if if it rises in international waters, it's anybody's game. And two, uh, it's a whole other aspect of the ecology, and it might expose a lot of what they've been saying about climate change versus just natural earth changes. Now, the earth changes that are coming up, according to the mystery schools, include a gradual uh, pole shift, include inundations, include earthquakes, but it includes land rising. And if it's done in a particular way, humanity can actually benefit in the final analysis. However, uh, it may be a cataclysmic um style activity at times, especially given the uh, kind of man-made disregard for the environment. I've always felt that we should have a real big conversation about the environment and that uh, the environmental destruction by the corporations should be something that they pay for. And it shouldn't be anything that the independent media hides from and says, we don't believe in climate change, so we never talk about having a good environment. No. If Apple has ruined the environment, you know, if SpaceX and Tesla, you know, I think that's a ripoff of the name Tesla. I don't know. I think Tesla's uh, Tesla's relatives should sue him for that. Um, but if, they, if they're doing that, if they're destroying this environment, then they should be the ones who are paying for it with all the money on their balance sheet. It doesn't have to be anything about the average citizen getting taxed for their environmental nonsense and the fact that they want to fly in private planes. So, um, you know, there's, there's things to work out there. The tone-deaf attitude, the optics of uh, the Davos crowd and all that stuff, hanging out in Switzerland, <laughs> you know, with you know, 100 year old wine and caviar, <laughs> uh, while they're, you know, creating Bring homeless problems. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just too much. And, uh, so, you know, they, they've reached a, a point they've, they've gone into that zone and, uh, I had a good name for the zone. I called it the Colbert Vax dance zone. <laughs> this is beyond freaky. Uh, you know, when you become totally demented as a culture, you get something like the Colbert Vax dance zone. Everyone it's been great uh, to be here with you tonight. What a You've been listening to Radio 5G, a production of CosmicReality.com. Thank you for listening.